So tonight we're going to be in the book of 1 Peter. And before I kind of break out into the passage, I kind of want to set some groundwork that Peter sets in the last two sections, the ones that Josh preached and the one that Aaron preached. Um, In these kind of sections, Peter lays out kind of the idea of how Christians are kind of supposed to relate to the world around them and the people in it. Josh talks about, uh, you know, submit to governing authorities. Well, that's how Christians are supposed to relate to believers and unbelievers in civil society. Aaron talked about um, slaves submitting to your masters. Well, I know that slavery is not a mainstay in our current economic system, but I could, I would make the argument that you could replace the word slaves with workers and masters with supervisors. So, in other words, in common day, it's um, workers submit to your supervisors. And so, and also in those kind of two sections, we kind of see this kind of braided argument that Peter makes. He's going, there's, there's this idea of submission, and also there's this idea of suffering. When Aaron preached last month, he, he untwisted that argument, and he looked specifically, or mainly, at the suffering argument, being we are called to suffer. Well, it kind of worked out really, really well because my angle was going to be on the submission aspect. So um, we're going to look at 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open it up, follow it along. Um, I, am curr- I am using the New American Standard, so if it doesn't quite match up with ESV, that's why. Um, so it's in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely the external braiding of the hair and wearing of gold jewelry or putting on of dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, Live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So here, Peter is kind of laying out a new place where Christians need to relate to people differently. And that is in the family, specifically in the marriage between a husband and wife. So, I'm going to start here with saying this is not, this passage is not like a marriage manual. It's not go here, this is how you're going to have a long, happy marriage, and you're all going to get along, and it'll just be great. But 
it's got some useful advice that you might not want to ignore. So this passage kind of lays out a return to the original form of what marriage was. And kind of what, it, what is that? What, what was that original form? Well, it's, it's kind of laid out in Genesis 2, 18 through 21. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the, ma- whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and all the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper found suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept. And he took out one of his ribs, and he clo- and, and, ugh, and he closed up, and he took out one of his ribs and cl- closed up the flesh at that place. So here we kind of see the answer. But if we go to verses 23 and 24, we, it kind of makes the point even better. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So here in these two sections, we not only see that woman is the only helper for man, it also gets to the idea that they that we are equal to each other. For we're both image bearers of God, and we both came, and women, woman came from man. So therefore, we are equal. But what's this idea of one flesh? Well, I define it as essentially becoming one being, meaning that now all of you, both, all of its parts are now working towards a singular goal. What does this imply for a married couple then? Well, it means that a husband and a wife are to come together and share the burdens and the work of the life that we are given. Just as Adam and Eve shared the work of tending the garden. That was their goal. Their goal was to tend the garden and be with God. So, just as a person's arms, legs, and back all work together in lifting a singular heavy weight, husband and wives, too, must need to come together to to fulfill the calling of God. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, single people, you guys can't serve in the same way as married people. If we look at the lives of Paul and Christ, we kind of can't make that statement. (laughs) They were both single. So, we also just don't, but this passage deals with marriage. So, what happens to lead Peter to think that he needs to kind of show us what the relationship needs to look like? Well, the relationship somewhere had to have been broken. Well, where do we see it break? Genesis 3. That's kind of where everything gets twisted and kind of falls apart. So in Genesis 3, we see the fall of man and how the serpent deceives Eve into eating of the knowledge, you know, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How then she gave the fruit to Adam, and he ate, and their eyes were opened, and how they made clothes for themselves at that point and hid from the sight of God, or tried. <laughs> and then we see 
the shameful display of Adam when God says, who caused you to do this? He literally goes, the woman whom you gave to me gave me the fruit and I ate. So he passes the buck. That's literally the first thing we do when we're given, you know, free will. We literally pass the buck. And Eve does the same thing. She goes, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So then we get into Genesis 13 or Genesis 3, 4, 14 through 16, and then the latter half of 17 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are, more, are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now we get to the latter half of 17 and into 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, and from d- for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. With these curses from the sin of man, we see how the entire creation becomes twisted to reflect the sin that had just been committed. So therefore, on every level, we are affected. Not just, you know, not, not just here where we see, you know, you have to work, you know, it's hard work now and you have to strive for everything. It's no longer given to you. It's not only that, it's our very relationships that are twisted and broken. So from that point on, a hierarchy is introduced into even to, to a lot of our relationships, but this one specifically. And whenever there's a hierarchy, there's always a power struggle. And we see it with the verse, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So husbands now rule over their wives and wives desire to rule over their husbands. So let's kind of take a look here and see where we can see a lot of these problems in action and how they can have a lot more wide, uh, widespread implications than what we'd originally think. So since Peter mentioned Sarah later, We'll, we'll go with, you know, Sarah and Abraham. Easy to look at. We're looking at Genesis 16 and 21. This is the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. How Sarah, who, you know, how Sarah goes to Abraham, and he says, and she says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid, and perhaps I will obtain children through her. And what do we see? Abraham gives in. He goes, yes, we'll do that. Even though, literally in the last chapter, he is promised a son from God. And also, God has gotten him from Ur to Canaan. Like, he says, go, and I will show you the way. And Abraham follows. So you think Abraham would be able to go, oh, hold on, Sarah. Let's, let's, let's let God fulfill the promise in his time. Let's not try to you know, let's, let's not try and speed things up. So, 
he gives into Sarah, and he goes to Hagar, and they conceive a son. But even then, Sarah's not happy. Because she goes to him, she, after, after Ishmael's born, Abraham, or Sarah goes to Abraham and says, may the, wrong done upon, may the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. So basically, my broken relationship with Hagar is your fault, Abraham. And Abraham goes, well, she's your maid. Deal with her how you want. Well, as we, as we read, Sarah is harsh in her treatment of Hagar. And that causes Hagar to flee into the wilderness. So she's, you know, so Hagar's out in the wilderness. She's pregnant at this point. And so, but Hagar goes from, is, is, then is met, met by an angel. And she's given some good news, some bad news. Um, she's told that Ishmael will grace, or God will great, greatly increase Ishmael's descendants. But it comes with a little caveat. It goes, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live east of all of his brothers. So, I mean, I guess that's good news. I mean, your son gets to live, but nobody's going to like him, and he's going to live off far away from everyone else. But, so, she takes God at his word, and, she, and Hagar returns to Sarah. And the child is born and named Ishmael. And they live together, what I'm assuming, being relative peace for a while until Isaac is conceived. And now Sarah goes even farther. Sarah basically goes to Abraham and says, turn her out. Get, get rid of Hagar, get rid of Ishmael, let Isaac be the sole heir to your house. So Abraham does, but this time it's on God's instructions. He goes, send them out. I will provide. So, that's what happens. Isaac becomes the sole heir to Abraham's house, becomes the one through whom Abraham's descendants are numbered. But, what happens to Ishmael? Well, he goes off and has his descendants, and there's one person that has claimed descendants from Ishmael. That's Muhammad. And we all know that he founded what is now the religion of Islam. And we know that the Jews and Muslims, they just, they get along great, don't they? Like they are just best friends. So we can see that in this case, Sarah's desire to rule over Abraham to get what she wants and Abraham's weakness in allowing it has produced not only a broken relationship between a husband, a wife, and a servant, but also nations. So, I just kind of found that interesting. So, how does, so how do we return to this idea of being 
you know, of, of the wife being the helper for the husband. Well, Peter lays that out. He goes, in verse 1, Peter goes, In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. That's already an interesting statement because that's implying that wives are to submit to their own husbands and not just men in the church in general. So that means, you know, Olivia, you are to submit to Randy in this way, but not, say, Jacob. (laughs) So it's really in Genesis 2 that we kind of see this submission for the good of a common goal. Because like I said, they are serving to work in the garden and tend it as God commanded. So let's look at it this way. You know, Denton, Kaylee, I'm pretty sure that Eli and Nathan have wanted something at exactly the same time, or at least close enough, that you might as well call it at the exact same time. So, you know, how's it usually handled? You know, Kaylee, you'll grab Nathan if he's hungry or needs changed, and, you know, Denton, you'll go, okay, I got Eli, right? (laughs) It's not, you know, Denton doesn't look at Kaylee and go, all right, you got those, I'll be fine. I'll just sit here and finish this. No, we see that, you know, in this instance, Denton and Kaylee are working towards the same goal of raising children in the knowledge of the faith, whatever that entails, whether that be food, bathroom, to change diapers, whatever it needs. So that's, that's, that's the example there. Um, now that we've seen how it's kind of supposed to look, Let's, let's see, you know, kind of where it goes wrong. Well, in this particular instance, we're looking at wives' actions towards husbands. So we're kind of talking to the wives about your husbands right now. So it goes, if any of them are disobedient to the word. Well, this verse kind of already shows that we're not in an ideal situation, the one that Peter's talking about. Well, MacArthur says here that the language here in the Greek is talking about, you, is being used to talk about specifically unbelieving husbands. But I don't necessarily think that needs to be the end-all kind of idea. Like, you could easily stretch it into husbands that are going through a season of disobedience or disbelief, but still believing husbands at the core. Well, the call here is very interesting. It's, it's not a specific call to, for wives to, you know, slap your husbands and throw the Bible under their nose and say, look, you're not acting right. No, it's this idea of you're being just merely called to live a normal Christian life. Now, and we see that here with also that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not merely be external, braiding the hair and wearing of gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. (coughs) Now, I'm not saying wives, you know, you're not called to point out your husband's sins. Not saying that at all. I think that's actually part of our jobs as married couples. Wives, you're supposed to point out your husband's sin, and husband, you're supposed to point out your wife's sin. But what I'm kind of going at is, is that <coughs> there's, there's this, this gets split into almost kind of 
two ways of acting, or uh, two ways of relating. One, there's the public sense, and then there's the more private sense. The private sense is where the wives are supposed to point out their sins to their husbands and vice versa. That's where that's appropriate. This particular section is really talking more of the public relation. Because we go with the unbelieving husband um, (coughs) idea, then it's, well, the husband's probably not going to church. Well, so that means he's not getting preached to normally. Well, okay, so that means, wives, you come to church as believers. You'll come to church and get the message there and you take it home. But that, do, but this particular state says you're not supposed to come to church and then just bandy about how bad your husband acts, how sinful he is, because that destroys one his public reputation, whether or not there's one there to protect or not. But you shouldn't be trying to b- take it down. So, you know, so you don't go out there and say my husband does X. Isn't he so vile and wicked? So, to me, this kind of gets to the idea of Matthew 18. You know, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. You know, you're, you, you start with in private. And I would say, wives, you are the first line of defense for your husband's sins. You start with the in private. Then you go and grab some of his friends, and, you know, you continue down the line. Then it becomes public. You don't start in public. So to me, this kind of also brings to mind John 13, 35. By this way, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Therefore, through submission, the wife loves her husband. And through that, through that love and submission, she can win her husband. She can help win her husband to Christ or win him back. So then, this then begs the question, how far does this submission go? Where do we draw the line? Well, let's go back to Sarah for a second. When Sarah and Abraham are called to leave Ur and go to Canaan, well, they go through a couple of different kingdoms. They go through Egypt, and then they meet the king Abimelech. Well, in both cases... Abraham tells Sarah to lie and say that Sarah is his sister. She submits and says, all right, we'll do that. Well, with that being the story that they're getting out, Sarah kind of runs into a bit of a problem with both of those kings and somehow manages to work work her way into, essentially, their bedchambers. Well, in this case, in, in, this, in these two cases, we see that the Spirit of God comes upon both kings and stops the action. Ren, you know, they, 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 they don't violate what becomes later the thou shalt not commit adultery. So, we can kind of already see a line being drawn, and God himself has drawn the line. But, let's, let's also go to a couple other examples. One's in the, you know, they're both in the book of Daniel. The first is Daniel 2, where Daniel and his, where the book opens and they find themselves in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, here they're being educated in the history, 
the religion, and they're being given, you know, even Babylonian names. Well, the king orders that they will eat the best food of his table. Well, Daniel looks at that and goes, we can't do that. That, that violates the restrictions that God has put upon us. So, we, so he, he still submits to the king by learning this history and religion and taking on his Babylonian name, but he draws the line at the violation of the uh, Mosaic law and its dietary restrictions. So he works with the head guard and says, look, you give us what essentially kind of translates to either like a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet, and we'll see who's stronger and who's more fit at the end of 10 days. And if we're wrong, well, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Um, so after the 10 days, we see that Daniel and his friends are outright just stronger, smarter, and all of it. So we can see here that we can submit and work within the system that we're given and not have to violate God's commands. Well, let's, get to the, let's, let's go to an example where they had a little less wiggle room, which is in Daniel 3, where we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Sure, we all know that story. Um, Nebuchadnezzar creates this golden idol and says, you have to bow to it or you are going to go into this fiery furnace. And well, the furnace... We kind of see later that it was so hot that the people opening it dropped dead. Like it was that hot. So there's, they, they kind of have a bit of skin in this game. Because as we see throughout the book of Daniel, the vi- you know, violating the commands of this particular king, you're going to find yourself shorter by about a head. But when the trumpets blow, they don't bow. Well, the king hears word of it, and he says, bring him here. He even gives him another chance. He's like, look, we're going to do it one more time. You guys go for it. We'll forget this ever happened. Well, here's their answer. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the, fl- from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So, in short terms, they basically told him to stuff it. (laughs) Um, Well, you know what happens after that. He throws them into the furnace, and they don't burn up. So, this this particular example kind of also touches... This Aaron's sermon where we are called to suffer. And in some cases, we are called to suffer as Christ suffered, even unto death. And he goes, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king. So to me, that kind of says that there is all three of these men were prepared to die that day but they didn't submit. They submitted to God first, and they were ready to suffer whatever came after that. So that's what submission looks like. 
you submit first to God. And that means sometimes you need to submit to others. So, you know, it goes back to what Jesus said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So that means submitting to God means submitting to others. So, husbands, it's your turn. We're going to talk to you now. Verse 7 is kind of your verse. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir to the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. So this last verse, like I said, he starts, he addresses the husband. But he's still calling you to submit to your wives, just not in the same way that they submit to you. They submit to you as spiritual leaders and um, just leaders of the household. You are submitting as to someone weaker. Let's, let's tease that out for a second. Now, there are, a couple of, there are a couple of different ideas as to what this particular sentence means. Some say that it's both a physical and a spiritual weakness. I don't think we can say that it's you're spiritually weaker. I don't think you can make that claim because literally the next part of the verse says, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. So that automatically means that we're on a spiritual equal standing. So... Now, I will say that it's probably leaning more towards a physical weakness. You're physically weaker. I know in today's world that that's shocking to hear, but when you compare apples to apples, if you're putting up somebody, you know, if you have a female bodybuilder on one hand and a male bodybuilder on the other, all else being equal, meaning no steroids, it's all natural, men are going to be able to have, are going to have a higher deadlift. It's, it's just, that's the way that it's going to work. So, husbands need to submit to their wives at their needs. <clears throat> their wives knowing that they need provision, protection, and strength from their husbands. Also, I feel like there's another verse, and God's apparently wanting us to read Ephesians here, because we, went, we had Ephesians in our liturgy, and then Robert brings Ephesians up in his sermon, and now I'm bringing it up in mine, I'm in Ephesians 5.25 where it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, that, you know, so wives, submit to your husbands and win them back to Christ through your actions, through your obedience, but still point out their sin in private. Husbands, do not be tyrants ruling over your wives, but rather protect them, but be prepared to lay down your life for them. Just as Christ died for the church. However, we need to keep this helper model in mind and always try to submit to one another in the support of shared goals, whether that be pursuant to Matthew 28, you know, therefore go to all nations, proclaiming the gospel, baptizing disciples in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or just raising your children the knowledge and faith. So I'm going to kind of lay it out again, you know, saying that this is not a marriage manual. This is not the place that you go to to 
kind of have a long, successful marriage. This is a place where you go for advice. And the irony is not lost on me that the unmarried man is the one saying all of this. I'm not, that, that irony was not lost on me when Matt gave me the passage. But I took solace in the fact of going, these aren't my words. These words were written by Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when you, when you were listening to me looking up here, don't see an unmarried man. See, just, just look at the, you know, see an unmarried man telling married people how it ought to be. No, look at it as God telling you this is the way that it was supposed to be and the way that it should be. So, if you'll pray with me. Father, we come to you this evening, and I ask that you would take the words that I have spoken, the words that Peter wrote, and you would allow them to sink up. Basically, meaning take anything that I said that was wrong and wipe that from the slate, just leaving the truth. And I also ask that you would help both the wives and the husbands and the married relationships that are here and would allow people to take what you leave as the truth and implement it in their own lives. And lastly, I ask that you would forgive us all where we fall short in that particular aspect. In your son's name I pray. Amen.